Welcome to Volume 7 of The Mating Season. Chapter 16 The room in which I found myself was bright and cheerful. In which respect it differed substantially from Bertram Wooster, and had the appearance of being the den or snuggery of some female interested in sports and pastimes, and was, I assumed, the headquarters of Madeline Bassett's solid school friend. There was an oar over the mantelpiece, a squash racket over the bookshelf, and on the walls a large number of photos, which even at a cursory glance I was able to identify as tennis and hockey groups. A cursory glance was all I was at leisure to bestow upon them at the moment, for the first thing to which my eye had been attracted to on my entry was a serviceable French window, and I made for it like a man on a walking tour diving into a village pub two minutes before closing time. It opened on a sunken garden at the side of the house, and offered an admirable avenue of escape to one whose chief object in life was to detach himself from this stately home of Wimbledon and never set eyes on the bolly place again. When I say it offered an admirable avenue of escape, it would be more correct to put it that it would have done had there not been standing immediately outside it, leaning languidly on a spade, a short, stout gardener in corduroy trousers and a red and yellow cap, which suggested, erroneously I imagine, that he was a member of the Marlebone Cricket Club. His shirt was brown, his boots black, his face cerise, and his whiskers grey. I am able to supply this detailed record of the colour scheme because for some considerable time I stood submitting this son of toil to close inspection. And the closer I inspected him, the less I found myself liking the fellow. Just as I had felt my spirit out of tune with the gasper-smoking housemaid of the larches, so did I now look askance at the establishment's gardener, feeling very strongly that what he needed was a pound and a half of dynamite exploded under his fat trouser seat. Presently, unable to stand the sight of him any longer, I turned away and began to pace the room like some caged creature of the wild, the only difference being that, whereas a caged creature of the wild would not have bumped into anything and come within a touch of upsetting a small table with a silver cup, a golf ball and a glass case, and a large framed photograph on it, which I did. It was only by an outstanding feat of leisure domain that I succeeded in catching the photograph as it fell, thereby averting a crash which would have brought every inmate of the house racing to the spot. And having caught it, I saw that it was a speaking likeness of Madeline Bassett. It was one of those full-face speaking likenesses. She was staring straight out of the picture, with large, sad, saucer-like eyes, and lips seemed to quiver with a strange, reproachful appeal. As I gazed at those sad eyes and took a square look at those quivery lips, something went off inside my bean like a spring. I'd had an inspiration. Events were to prove that my idea like about 94% of cat's meats, was just one of those that seemed a good idea at the time. But at the moment I was convinced that if I were to snitch this studio portrait and confront Gussie with it, bidding him drink it in and let conscience be his guide, all would be well. Remorse would creep in, his better self would get it up the nose, and all the old love and affection would come surging back. I believe this sort of thing frequently happens, Burglars, catching sight of photos of their mothers, instantly turn in their tools and resolve to lead a new life. 
And the same is probably true of footpads, con men, and fellows who have not paid their dog licenses. I saw no reason to suppose that Gussie would be slower off the mark. It was at this moment I heard the sound of a hoover being wheeled along the hall and realized that the housemaid was on her way to do the room. If there's anything that makes you feel more like a stag at bay than being in a room where you oughtn't be and hearing housemaids coming to do it, I don't know what is. If you describe Bertram Worcester at this juncture as all of a doodah, you would not be going far astray. I sprang to the window. The gardener was still there. I sprang back and nearly knocked the table over again. Finally, thinking quick, I sprang sideways. My eye had been caught by a substantial sofa in the corner of the room. I could have wished no more admirable cover. I was behind it with perhaps two seconds to spare. To say that I now breathe freely again would be putting it perhaps too strongly. I was still far from being at my ease. But I did feel, in this little nook of mine, I ought to be reasonably secure. One of the things you learn when you've knocked about the world a bit is that housemaids don't sweep behind sofas. Having run that hoover over the exposed portions of the carpet, they consider the day well spent and go off and have a cup of tea and a slice of bread and jam. On the present occasion, even the exposed portions of the carpet did not get their doing, for scarcely had the girl begun to ply the apparatus when she was called off the job by orders from the top. Good morning, Jane, said a voice, which from the fact that it was accompanied by a shrill bark, such as could have proceeded only from a white woolly dog, I took it to be that of the solid school friend. Never mind about doing the room now. No, miss, said the housemaid, seeming well pleased with the idea, and pushed off, no doubt to have another gasper in the scullery. There followed a rustling of paper as the solid girl seated herself on the sofa and skimmed through the morning journal. Then I heard her say, Oh, hello, Madeline. I was aware that the Bassett was with us. Good morning, Hilda, said the Bassett in that soupy, trickly voice, which had got her so disliked by all the right-thinking men. What a lovely, lovely morning. The solid girl said she didn't see what was so particularly hot about it, adding that personally she found all mornings foul. She spoke morosely, and I could see that her disappointment in love had soured her, poor soul. I mourned for her distress, and had the circumstances been different, might have reached up and patted her on the head. I've been gathering flowers, proceeded the Bassett. Beautiful, smiling flowers, all wet with morning dew. How happy flowers seem, Hilda. The solid girl said, why shouldn't they? What have they got to beef about? And there was a pause. The solid girl said something about the prospects of the Surrey Cricket Club, but received no reply. And a moment later it was evident that Madeline Bassett's thoughts had been elsewhere. I've just been in the dining room, she said, and one spotted the tremor in the voice. There was no letter from Gussie. I'm so worried, Hilda. I think I shall go down to Deverell by an earlier train. Suit yourself. I can't help having an awful feeling that he is seriously injured. He said he had only sprained his wrist, but has he? That is what I ask myself. Suppose the horse knocked him down and trampled on him. He'd have mentioned it. But he wouldn't. That's what I mean. Gussie is so unselfish and considerate. His first thought would be to spare me anxiety. Oh, Hilda, do you think his spine is fractured? What rot that is, 
fractured spine my foot. If there isn't a letter, all that it means is that this other fellow, what's his name, Worcester, has kicked at acting as his stenographer. I don't blame him. He's dippy about you, isn't he? He loves me very, very dearly. It's a tragedy. I can't describe to you, Hilda, the pathos of that look of dumb suffering in his eyes when we meet. Well, then, the thing's obvious. If you're dippy about a girl and another fellow has grabbed her, it can't be pleasant to sit at a writing table, probably with a rotten pen, sweating away while the other fellow dictates. My own, comma, precious darling, period. I worship you, comma, I adore you, period. How I wish, comma, my dearest, comma, that I could press you to my bosom and cover your lovely face with burning kisses, exclamation mark. I don't wonder Worcester has kicked it. You're very heartless, Hilda. I've had enough to make me heartless. I've sometimes thought of ending it all. I've got a gun in that drawer over there. Oh, Hilda! Oh, I don't suppose I shall. Loss of fuss and trouble. Have you seen the paper this morning? It says there's some talk of altering the leg-before-wicket rule again. Odd how your outlook changes when your heart's broken. I can remember a time when I'd have been all excited if they altered the leg-before-wicket rule. Now I don't give a damn. Let them alter it. And I hope they have a fine day for it. What sort of fellow is this Worcester, anyway? Oh, he's a dear. He must be if he writes Gussie's love letters for him. Either that or a perfect sap. If I were in your place, I'd give Gussie the air and sign up with him. Being a man, I presume he's a louse, like all other men. But he's rich, and money's the only thing that matters. From the way Madeline said, Oh, Hilda, darling, the wealth of reproach in the voice, I mean, and all that sort of thing, I could tell these cynical words had got in amongst her, shocking her and wounding her finer feelings, and I found myself in complete accord with her attitude. I thoroughly disapproved of this girl and her whole outlook, and wish she wouldn't say things like that. The position of affairs was black enough already, without having old school friends egging Madeline Bassett on giving Gussie the air and signing up with me. I think that Madeline would have gone on to chide and rebuke, but at this point, instead of speaking, she suddenly uttered a squeal or wordless exclamation, and the solid girl said, Now what? My photograph. What about it? Where is it? On the table. But it's not. It's gone. Then I suppose Jane has smashed it. She always smashes everything that isn't made of sheet iron. And I see no reason why she should have made an exception in favor of your photograph. You better go and ask her. I will, said Madeline, and I heard her hurrying out. A few moments passed. Self inhaling fluff and the solid girl presumably scanning her paper for further facts about the leg-before-wicket rule. And then I heard her say, Sit still. No doubt addressing the white-woolly dog, for shortly afterwards she said, All right, blast you, buzz off if you want to. And there was a thud, not a dull, sickening thud, but the sort of thud a white-woolly dog makes when landing on a carpet from a sofa of medium height. And it was almost immediately after this that there came a sound of sniffing in my vicinity, and with a considerable lowering of the already low morale, I realized that the animal must have picked up the characteristic Worcester smell, and was now in the process of tracking it to its source. And so it proved. 
Glancing round, I suddenly found its face about six inches from mine, its demeanour that of a dog that can hardly believe its eyes. Backing away with a startled oops, it retreated to the centre of the room and began barking. What is the matter with you, you silly ass? said the girl, and there was silence. On her part, that is, the white woolly dog continued to strain its vocal cords. Madeline Bassett re-entered. Jane says... She began and then broke off with a piercing scream. Hilda! Hilda! What are you doing with that pistol? The solid girl calmed her fears, though, leaving mine in status quo. Oh, don't get excited. I'm not going to shoot myself. Though it wouldn't be a bad idea. There's a man behind the sofa. Hilda! I've been wondering for some time where that curious breathing sound was coming from. Percy spotted him. boy, Percy. Nice work. Come on out, you... Rightly concluding that she meant it, I emerged, and Madeline uttered another of her piercing screams. A rather dressy criminal, though a bit shop-soiled, said the solid girl, scrutinizing me over the young cannon which she was leveling in my waistcoat. One of those Mayfair men you read about, I suppose. Hey, I see he's got that photo you were looking for, and probably half a dozen other things as well. I think the first move is to make him turn out his pockets. The thought that in one of those pockets lay Gussie's letter caused me to reel and utter a strangled cry, and the solid girl said if I was going to have a fit, that was all right with her, but she would be obliged if I would step through the window and have it outside. It was at this point that Madeline Bassett most fortunately found speech. During the preceding exchanges, if you can call it exchanges when one person has taken the floor and is doing all the talking, she'd been leaning against the wall with a hand to her heart, giving an impersonation, not a bad one either, of a cat with a herring bone in its throat. She now made her first contribution to the dialogue. Bertie! She cried. The solid girl seemed puzzled. Bertie? This is Bertram Worcester. That letter writer? What's he doing here? And why has he swiped your photograph? Madeline's voice sank to a tremulous whisper. I think I know. Then you're smarter than I am. Goofy, the whole proceeding strikes me as. Leave us, Hilda. I want to speak to Bertie. Alone. All right. I'll be shifting along to the dining room, then. I don't suppose, feeling the way I do, there's a dog's chance of my being able to swallow a mouthful. But I can be counting the spoons. The solid girl pushed off, accompanied by the white woolly dog, leaving us all set for a tete-a-tete which I, for one, would willingly have avoided. In fact, though it would, of course, have been a near thing with not much in it either way, I would have preferred a tete-a-tete with Dame Daphne Winkworth. Chapter 17 The proceedings opened with one of those long, sticky silences which give you the same unpleasant feeling you get when you let them rope you in to pay Bullstrid, a butler, in amateur theatricals, and you go on and find you've forgotten your opening lines. She was standing gazing at me, as if I had been a photographer about to squeeze the bulb and take a studio portrait in sepia and silver-gray wash, and after a while it seemed to me that it was about time one of us said something. The great thing on these occasions is to get the conversation going. Nice day, I said. I thought I'd look in. She enlarged the eyes a bit, but did not alter anything, so I proceeded. It occurred to me that you might be glad to have the latest bulletin about Gussie, 
so I popped up on the milk train. Gussie, I am glad to say, is getting along fine. The wrist is still stiff, but the swelling is subsiding, and there's no pain. He sends his best. She remained sotto voce and the silent tomb, and I carried on. I thought a word or two touching on my recent activities might now be in order. I mean, you can't just come bounding up from behind the furniture and let it go at that. You have to explain and clarify your motives. Girls like to know these things. You're asking yourself, probably, I said, what was I doing behind that sofa? I parked myself there on a sudden whim. I know how one gets these sudden whims. And you may be thinking it a bit odd. I should be going around with this studio portrait in my possession. Well, I'll tell you. I happened to see it on the table there, and I took it to give it to Gussie. I thought he would like to have it, to buck him up in your absence. He misses you sorely, of course, and it occurred to me that it would be nice for him to shove it on the dressing table and study it from time to time. No doubt he already has several of these speaking likenesses, but a fellow can always do with one more. Not too bad, it seemed to me, considering that the material had had to be thrown together rather against time. I was hoping for a bright smile and the cordial, why, yes, to be sure, a capital idea. Instead of which, she waggled her head in a slow, mournful sort of way, and a teardrop stood in her eye. Oh, Bertie, she said. I've always found it difficult to think of just the right comeback when people say, oh, Bertie, to me. My Aunt Agatha is always doing it. And she has me stymied every time. I found myself stymied this time. It is true that this old Bertie of the Bassets differed in many respects from Aunt Agatha's old Bertie, its tone being one of soupiness rather than asperity, but the effect was the same. I stood there at a loss. Oh, Bertie, she said again. Do you read Rosie M. Banks' novels? She asked. I was a bit surprised at her changing the subject like this but equally relieved. A talk about current literature, I felt, might ease the strain. These booksy chats often do. Not very frequently, I said. They sell like hotcakes, Bingo tells me. You have not read Mervyn Keene, Clubman? No, I missed that one. Good stuff. Oh, it's very, very beautiful. I must put it on my library list. You're sure you have not read it? Oh, quite. As a matter of fact, I've always steered rather clear of Mrs. Bingo's stuff. Why? It seems such an extraordinary coincidence. Shall I tell you the story of Mervyn Keene? Do. Go ahead. She took time out to gulp a bit, then carried on in a low voice with a goodish amount of throb to it. He was young and rich and handsome, an officer in the Coldstream Guard and the idol of all who knew him. Everybody envied him. I don't wonder. Lucky stiff. But he was really not to be envied. There was a tragedy in his life. He loved Cynthia Gray, the most beautiful girl in London. But just as he was about to speak his love, he found she was engaged to Sir Hector Maulevere, the explorer. Dangerous devils, these explorers. You want to watch them like hawks. In these circs, of course, he would have refrained from speaking his love. Keep it under his hat, I suppose. What? Yes, he spoke no word of love, but he went on worshipping her, outwardly gay and cheerful, inwardly gnawed by a ceaseless pain. And then, one night, her brother, Lionel, 
a wild young man, who had unfortunately got into bad company, came to his rooms and told him that he had committed a very serious crime and was going to be arrested, and he asked Mervyn to save him by taking the blame himself. And of course, Mervyn said he would. The silly ass! Why? For Cynthia's sake, to save her brother from imprisonment and shame. But it meant going to the chokey himself! I suppose he overlooked that. No, Mervyn fully realized what would happen. But he confessed to the crime and went to prison. When he came out, gray and broken, he found that Cynthia had married Sir Hector, and he went out to the South Sea Islands and became a beachcomber. And time passed. And then, one day, Cynthia and her husband arrived at the island on their travels, and stayed at Government House, and Mervyn saw her drive by, and she was just as beautiful as ever, and their eyes met, but she didn't recognize him, because of course he had a beard, and his face was changed because he had been living the pace that kills, trying to forget. I remembered a good one I had read somewhere about the pace that kills nowadays being the slow casual walk across a busy street but I felt that this was not the moment to spring it. He found that she was leaving the next morning, and he had nothing to remember her by, so he broke into Government House in the night and took from her dressing table the rose that she'd been wearing in her hair, and Cynthia found him taking it, and of course she was very upset when she recognized him. Oh, so she'd recognized him this time. He'd shaved, had he? No, he still wore his beard, but she knew him when he spoke her name, and there was a very powerful scene in which he told her how he had always loved her and had come to steal her rose, and she told him that her brother had died and confessed on his deathbed that it was he who had been guilty of the crime for which Mervyn had gone to prison, and then Sir Hector came in. Good situation! Strong! And, of course, he thought Mervyn was a burglar, and he shot him, and Mervyn died with the rose in his hand. And, of course, the sound of the shot roused the house, and the governor came running in and said, Is there anything missing? And Cynthia, in a low, almost inaudible voice, said, Only a rose. That is the story of Mervyn Keene, clubman. Well, it was difficult, of course, to know quite what comment to make. I said, oh, ah, but I felt at the time that it could have been improved upon. The fact is, I was feeling a bit stunned. I'd always known in a sort of vague general way that Mrs. Bingo wrote the world's worst tripe. Bingo generally changes the subject nervously if anyone mentions the little woman's output. But I had never supposed her capable of bilge like this. But the Bassett speedily took my mind off literary criticism. She'd resumed her saucer-like stare, and the teardrop in the eye was now more noticeable than ever. Oh, Bertie, she said, and her voice, like Cynthia's, was low and almost inaudible. I ought to have given you my photograph long ago. I blame myself, but I thought it would be too painful for you, too sad a reminder of all that you had lost. I see now that I was wrong. You found the strain too great to bear, 
At all costs, you had to have it. So you stole into the house like Mervyn Keene and took it. What? Yes, Bertie. There's no need for pretenses between you and me. And don't think I'm angry. I'm touched. More deeply touched than I can say. And oh, so, so sorry. How sad life is. I was with her there. You betcha, I said. You saw my friend, Hilda Gudgeon. There's another tragedy. Her whole happiness has been ruined by a wretched quarrel with a man she loves, a man called Harold Anstrother. They were playing in the mixed doubles in a tennis tournament not long ago, according to her. I don't understand tennis very well. He insisted on hogging the game, as she calls it. I think she means that when the ball came near her, she was going to strike it, and he rushed across and struck it himself. And this annoyed her very much. She complained to him, and he was very rude, and said she was a rabbit, and had better leave everything to him. And she broke off the engagement directly after the game was finished. And now she's broken-hearted. I must say, she didn't sound very broken-hearted. Just as the Bassett said these words, there came from without the uproar of someone singing. I identified the voice as that of the solid school friend. She was rendering that old number, give yourself a pat on the back. And the general effect was of an exhilarated foghorn. The next moment she came leaping into the room. I've never seen anything more radiant. If she hadn't had the white woolly dog in her arms, I wouldn't have recognized the somber female of so short a while ago. Hi, Madeline. She cried. What do you think I found on my breakfast table? A groveling letter from my boyfriend, no less. He surrendered unconditionally. He says he must have been mad to call me a rabbit. He says he can never forgive himself. But can I forgive him? Well, I can answer that one. I'm going to forgive him the day after tomorrow, not earlier, because, after all, we must have discipline. Oh, Hilda, how glad I am. I'm pretty pleased about it myself. Good old Harold, a king among men. But, of course, he needs keeping in his place from time to time and has to be taught what's what. But I mustn't run on about Harold. What I came to tell you was there's a fellow outside in a car who says he wants to see you. To see me? So he says. His name is Peerbright. Madeline turned to me. Why, it must be your friend, Claude Peerbright, Bertie. I wonder what he wants. I'd better go and see. She threw a quick glance at the solid girl, and seeing that she had stepped through the French window, no doubt to give the god to the devil about something, came to me and pressed my hand. You must be brave, Bertie. She said in a low, rupee voice. Someday. Another girl will come into your life, and you will be happy. When we're both old and grey, we shall laugh together over all this. Laugh, but I think with a tear behind the smile. She popped off, leaving me feeling sick. The solid girl, whom I had dimly heard telling the gardener he needn't be afraid of breaking that spade by leaning on it, came back and immediately proceeded in what I considered an offensively familiar manner to give me a hearty slap on the back. Well, Worcester, you old bloke, she said. Well, gudgeon, old bird, I replied courteously. Do you know, Worcester, 
I keep feeling there's something familiar about your name. I must have heard Harold mention it. Do you know Harold Anstruther? I had recognized the name directly I heard Madeline Bassett utter it. Beefy Anstruther had been my partner at Rackets last year at Oxford, when I had represented the establishment of that sport. I reveal this to the solid girl, and she slapped me on the back again. I thought I wasn't wrong. Harold speaks highly of you, Worcester, and I'll tell you something. I have a lot of influence with Madeline, and I'll exert it on your behalf. I'll talk to her like a mother. Darn it, we can't have her marrying a pill-like Gussie Finknoddle when there's a racket's blue on her waiting list. Courage, Worcester. Courage and patience. Come and have a bit of breakfast with me. Awfully thanks. No, I said. Though I needed it sorely, I must be getting along. Well, if you won't, you won't. But I will. I'm going to have the breakfast of a lifetime. I haven't felt so roaring fit since I won the tennis singles at Rodine. I'd brace myself for another slap on the back. But with a swift change of policy, she prodded me in the ribs, depriving me of what little breath her frightful words had left inside me. At the thought of what might result from a girl of her dominating personality talking to Madeline Bassett like a mother, I had wilted where I stood. It was with what are called leaden steps that I passed through the French window and made my way to the road. I was anxious to intercept Catsmeat when he drove out, so that I might learn from him the result of his interview. And of course, when he did drive out, he was herring along at such a pace that it was impossible to draw myself to his attention. He vanished over the skyline as if he had been competing in some event at Brooklyn's, leaving me standing. In sombre mood, bowed down with dark forebodings, I went off to get a bit of breakfast and catch a train back to King Deverell. Chapter 18 The blokes who run the railway don't make it easy for you to get from Wimbledon to King's Deverell. Feeling no doubt, and I suppose it's a kindly thought, that that abode of thugs and ghouls is a place you're better away from. You change twice before you get to Bassingstoke, and then change again and take the branch line. And once you're on the branch line, it's quicker to walk. The first person I saw when I finally tottered out at Journey's End, feeling as if I had been glued to the cushioned seat since boyhood, and a bit surprised that I hadn't put out tendrils like a Virginia creeper, was my cousin Thomas. He was buying motion picture magazines at the bookstall. Hello, I said. So you got here all right? He eyed me coldly and said, Crumbs. A word of which he is far too fond. This Thomas is one of those tough, hard-boiled striplings, a sort of juvenile James Cagney with a touch of Edward G. Robinson. He has carroty hair and a cynical expression, and his manner is supercilious. You would think that anyone conscious of having a mother like my Aunt Agatha and knowing it could be proved against him would be crushed and apologetic, but this was not the case. He swanks about the place as if he's bought it, and in conversation with a cousin lacks tact and is apt to verge on the personal. He became personal now on the subject of my appearance, which I must confess was not spruce. Night travel in milk trains always tends to remove the gloss, and you can't hobnob with beetles on bushes and remain dapper. Crumbs, he said. You look like something the cat dragged in. You see what I mean? The wrong note. In no frame of mind to bandy words, I clouded the child moodily on the head and passed on. 
and as I emerged into the station yard, somebody yahooed, and I saw Corky sitting in a car. Hello, Bertie, she said. Where did you spring from, Moon of my delight? She looked about her in a weary and conspiratorial manner, as if she had been registering snakiness in a spy film. Did you see what was in the station? She said, lowering her voice. Yes, I did. Jeeves delivered him as per memo last night. Uncle Sidney looked a little taken aback for a moment and seemed as if he were on the point of saying some of the things he gave up saying when he took orders, but everything has turned out for the best. He loves his games of chess, and it seems that Thomas is the undisputed champion of his school, brimming over with gambits and openings and things, so they get along fine, and I love him. What a sympathetic, sweet-natured boy he is, Bertie. I blinked. You are speaking of my cousin Thomas. He's so loyal. When I told him about that heel Dobbs arresting Sam Goldwyn, he simply boiled with generous indignation. He says he's going to cosh him. To what him? It's something people do to people in detective stories. You use a small but serviceable rubber bludgeon. He hasn't got a small but serviceable rubber bludgeon. Oh, yes, he has. He bought it in Seven Dials when he was staying at your flat. His original idea was to employ it on a boy called Stinker at Bramley-on-Sea, but it's now earmarked for Dobbs. Oh, my God! It will do Dobbs all the good in the world to be coshed. It may prove a turning point in his life. I have a feeling that things are breaking just right these days, and that very shortly an era of universal happiness will set in. Look at Catsmeat, if you want Exhibit A. Have you seen him? Not to speak of, I said. Speaking in a distraught manner, for my mind was still occupied with Thomas and his plans. The last thing you want when the nervous system is in a state of hash are your first cousin socking policemen with rubber bludgeons. What about cat's meat? Well, I just met him now, and he was singing like a linnet all over the place. He had a note from Gertrude last night, and she says that if and when she can elude her mother's eye, she'll elope with him. His cup of joy is full. I'm glad someone's is. The sourness in my tone caused her to look sharply at me, and her eye widened as she saw the disorder of my outer crust. Bertie, my lamb, she cried, visibly moved. What have you been doing to yourself? You look like... Something the cat dragged in. I was going to say something excavated from Tutankhamun's tomb, but your guess is as good as mine. What's been happening? I passed a weary hand over the brow. Corky, I said, I've been through hell. About the only place I thought you didn't have to go through to get to King's Deverell. And how were they all? I have a frightful story to relate. Did somebody cosh you? I've just come from Wimbledon. From Wimbledon? But Catsmeat was attending to the Wimbledon end. He told me all about it. He didn't tell you about it because all about it is precisely what he doesn't know. If you've only heard Catsmeat's reminiscences, you simply aren't within a million miles of being in possession of the facts. He barely scratched the surface of Wimbledon. Whereas I... Would you care to have the ghastly details? She said she would love to and I slipped them to her, and for once she listened attentively from start to finish, an agreeable deviation from her customary deaf adder tactics. I found her a good audience. She was properly impressed when I spoke of Gussie's letter, nor did she omit to draw the breath in sharply as I touched on the gudgeon and the sinister affair of the studio portrait. 
The facts in connection with the white woolly dog also went over big. Golly, she said as I wore to a close. You do live, don't you, Bertie? I agreed that I lived, but expressed a doubt as to under whether the present circumstances being what they were, it was worth while continuing to do so. One was rather inclined, I said, to murmur, Death, where is thy sting, and turn the toes up? The best one can say, I concluded, is that one has obtained a brief respite, if respite is the word, and that only if Casmeet was successful in dissuading the Bassett from her awful purpose. For all I know, she may be coming on the next train. Oh no, she's not. He headed her off. You had that straight from the horse's mouth? Direct from his personal lips. I drew a deep breath. This suddenly put a brighter aspect in the cloud wreck. In fact, it seemed to me that Hallelujah about summed it up, and I mentioned this. I was concerned to note that she appeared a bit dubious. Well, yes, I suppose Hallelujah sums it up. To a certain extent, I mean, you can make your mind easy about her coming here. She isn't coming, but in the light of what you tell me about Mervyn Keene Clubman and the studio portrait, it's a pity Casme didn't hit on some other method of heading her off. I do feel that. My heart stood still. I clutched at the windscreen for support, and what wotted. The great thing to remember, the thing to bear in mind and keep the attention fixed on, is that he meant well. My heart stood stiller. In your walks about London, you will sometimes see bent, haggard figures that look as if they had recently been caught in some powerful machinery. They are those fellows who got mixed up with cat's meat when he was meaning well. What he told Miss Bassett was this. He said that on hearing that she was coming to the hall, you betrayed agitation and concern, and finally he got out of you what the trouble was. Loving her hopelessly as you do, you shrank from the agony of having to see her day after day in Gussie's society. My heart, ceasing to stand still, gave a leap and tried to get out through my front teeth. He told Madeline Bassett what? I quivered, shaking on my stem. Yes, and implored her to stay away and not subject you to this anguish. He says he was terrific and wished one or two managers had been there to catch his work. I think he must have been pretty good, because Miss Bassett cried buckets and said she quite understood, and of course would cancel her visit, adding something in a low voice about the desire of the moth for the star and how sad life was. What did you say? I explained I had not spoken, merely uttered one of those hollow groans, and she agreed that in the cirques hollow groans were probably in order. But of course, it wasn't easy for the poor angel to think of a good way of stopping her coming, she argued. And the great thing was to stop her somehow. True! So if I were you, I would try to look on the bright side. Count your blessings one by one if you know what I mean, Bertie. This is an appeal which, when addressed to Bertram Worcester, rarely falls on deaf ears. The stunned sensation which her words had induced did not actually leave me but it diminished somewhat in intensity. I saw her point. There is much in what you say, I agreed, rising on stepping stones of my dead self to higher things, as I have mentioned is my custom. The great thing, as you justly remark, was to stop the basset blowing in, and if that has been accomplished, one does wrong to be fussy about the actual mechanism, and after all, she was already firmly convinced of my unswerving devotion. 
so cat's meat hasn't really plunged me so very much deeper in the broth than I was before. That's my brave little man. That's the way to talk. We now have a respite. It all depends on how quickly you can put Gussie on ice. The moment that is done, the whole situation will clarify. Released from your fatal spell, he will automatically return to the old love, feeling that the cagey thing is to go where he is appreciated. When do you expect him to cool off? Oh, very soon. Why not instanter? Well, I'll tell you, Bertie. There's a little job I want him to do for me first. What job? Ah, here's Thomas at last. He seems to have bought every fan magazine in existence. To read at the concert, if he's sensible. You haven't forgotten the concert is this evening. Well, mind you don't. And when you see Jeeves, ask him how that clack of Esmond's has come out. Hop in, Thomas. Thomas hopped in, giving me another one of his supercilious looks, and went in, leaned across, and slipped a penny into my hand, saying, Here, poor old man, and urging me not to spend it on drink. At any other moment, this coarse ribaldry would have woken the fiend that sleeps in Bertram Worcester and led to the young pot of poison receiving another cloud on the head. But I had no time now for attending to Thomas's. I fixed Corky with a burning eye. What job, I repeated. Oh, it wouldn't interest you, she said. Just a trivial little job about the place. And she drove off, leaving me a prey to a nameless fear. I was hoofing along the road that led to the hall, speculating dully as to what precisely she had meant by the expression, trivial little job, when as I rounded a corner, something large and Norfolk-coated hove into sight, which I identified as Esmond Haddock. <laughs>